Hey everybody, Clint Fosley here and welcome back to the 25th edition of the Clint Fosley podcast series, another Y series, and today we've got Australian surfing legend Nat Young. Now for those who are not in the surfing world who don't know anything about surfing, Nat's an absolute legend, he's got two world titles, some longboard world titles, and as I dug into the history of Nat, it was uh, a man of many, many hats, entrepreneur, businessman, pilot, ski nut, uh, been on boards, he's an uh, absolute fanatical and passionate shaper, so he's really had the most amazing and fulfilled life. It was a bit of an interesting one going into Nat because he's the first person that I've had on a podcast that's had an autobiography and Nat's written six books as well, I guess, to add to all his titles of super detailed information. So I was really conscious of not just repeating what he had done in his books because they're, you know, they're definitely worth checking out and the detail in there is amazing. Um, so do, do check that out. So what I try to do with this podcast is still do the Y series, talking about all about his passions and, and his love and his joy for life, but just more of a philosophical point of view and not getting stuck on the details about what Nat take is on life and, and try to weave that through his life and his career. Probably the best part of the podcast was when we were, when we were filming before and I was telling the family about the Finding Your Why course and, and, and the fact that you know, a lot of people out there struggling finding their passion. Um, literally in, in, in song, both Nat, his wife, his wife Ty and his daughter Nava all went, what? What do you mean people don't know what to do? Which was just, you know, awesome to see as just a, a, a family that's super, super passionate <laughs> about surfing in the ocean and also the, as of the snow as it turns out as well and music as well. Uh, these these sort of connections don't happen without wonderful, wonderful friends. So thanks so much to Dr. Ian, Mardo and Megzi for the hookup. I owe you a cabin in the catamaran when it's booked. Um, thanks also so much to my dear friend Lester from Sydney who is a surfing history, uh, I guess, I wouldn't say Bible or thesaurus of sorts. So thanks so much, Lester, for all the time and effort for helping me prep for this. Because um, as you know, Nat's had one hell of a life. So it was a hell of a lot of research going into this one. If you're struggling on a personal level, then you know reach out to us. We're here to help. The Finding Your Why course is there specifically for this reason. Um, also, the divorce and separation courses are up there. So clintfossey.com forward slash help me. I just want to thank, thank Nat so much for time. Once again, for all his time. Thanks to him and Ty and Nava for welcoming me into their home. One last thing, I drove down to see Nat in the middle of a torrential downpour, so there are little bits here and there where there is some audio issues, that's because we were getting absolutely hammered by the rain while recording, unfortunately there's nothing we can do about that, I think it was just mother nature reminding us exactly who is boss. Um, it's a wonderful, wonderful episode, so strap in, enjoy, and we'll see you on the other side. Welcome back to the Clint Force Podcast, episode 25, another Y series, and we're joined by Nat Young. Nat, welcome to the podcast. Nice to be here, Clint. Thank you. So, to the Australian surfing community, uh, needs no introduction. To the rest of the world, Nat is a world champion surfer, entrepreneur, filmmaker, author, almost a, almost a politician, a pilot, many other hats that you've worn throughout your throughout your uh, illustrious career. Um, firstly, thanks so much for welcoming me into your home. I really, really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. And nice home to be here. Welcome. <laughs> I got a, got a little wave beforehand, which is key, I think, um, in terms of the podcast. So, Nat, for those who don't know you, I mean, obviously the Australian community know you well, but to the global audience and the non-surfers, just a, a quick sort of 
you know, early life, where you're born, how you got into surfing, and then we're going to go off on a couple of tangents in terms okay. of your philosophy in life, I guess. All right. Um, well, I was born in Sydney on the northern beaches of Sydney, and um, my next-door neighbour was a surfer, and he um, basically introduced me to the surfboard when I was 10 years old. Yeah. And so I just I graduated uh, to riding uh, more and more and more and uh, going to school less and less, and uh, that's, that's kind of how it all developed. I was... Um, that was at a beach called Collaroy, and uh, what I'd do is, um, you know, I'd, when I got old enough, you know, I'd have a pushy in a trailer that we built, you know, and I'd have a, my first board and drag it by the, the fin behind the back of that and go down to, to Collaroy because that was a point break, and so yeah. I could actually learn to go sideways pretty well, and uh, that's, that's sort of how it all started. So... Growing up in the northern beaches, now I still remember actually my first time ever in Australia was landing in Manly. So I got picked up at Sydney Airport by a good friend of mine, Lester, and he took me to Manly. And it was it was almost like the Truman Show. I don't know if you've seen that movie before, where that no. where, where, where Jim Carrey grows up in this bubble that they yeah. put him in as as for a TV show. No, I never have seen it, but I mean I understand what you. I got the principle of what you're saying. Everything was perfect, right? Coming from South Africa, where where you know you lock everything and there's rubbish most places. Uh, Manly was just this pristine, perfect place with, you know, yeah. beautiful people. And what were the northern beaches like that in the 60s or what was it like? Well, in the 60s, it was just like I was, I grew up right on the beach, like the first house, houses, a line of houses. And then there was a road called Pitwater Road. And then behind that, there was bush that ran all the way up to the top of uh, Colroy Plateau. And it was just like so beautiful, just such a perfect ideal place to grow up because you had bush at the background to play in, you know, a primary school and a, a high school just a couple of miles down the road. It was just, and, uh, you know, I had a lot of really good friends that were on the same um, level as I was with surfing. You know, they were, everybody was really um, enjoying it and learning and uh, every, every week it was something more that you could do. And we all had um, surfboards that we were just sort of getting together and paying off by, you know, doing our paper runs and all sorts of other things to to pull it off. It was uh, it was a very uh, wonderful uh, environment. As kids, we were really lucky, I think. And just understanding, trying to understand those early days, you know, it seemed like the clubby, life-saving world was something that's also strong in Australian community, but a very conformed, structured way, and then the surfing was more the free spirit way of enjoying the ocean. Yeah, that was. Uh, I, I didn't um, right from the word go. I really didn't appreciate them, and I still don't appreciate them at all. I think that they, uh, I think they've, you know, done a lot of very good things. In other words, they they have actually saved a lot of lives, which is primarily what they were designed to do. But I think they also have this incredible. Um, indulgence factor with people that just simply get drunk every weekend and that's what we had at Colorado when I was a kid you know they just did diabolical things particularly the kids so I had no um, time or respect for them at all you know they dig giant holes when they were drunk and then put all us kids in and piss on them just terrible stuff wow but that's because they were just you know, they were drunk and they were just, you know, out of control. 
you know, people that were surf club members and, you know, that sort of really coloured my attitude to it. And even when I got older, you know, like many times, you know, I hate to think how many people I've actually saved from drowning in surfing incidents because, as you know, surfers surf on the edge of rips. Yeah. So when I moved to Palm Beach with my my wife, Ty, people would get sucked out in the rip all the time and then you'd have to go and stick a surfboard under them and swim them back to the beach, you know. So I, and I reckon that as far as saving people, I bet I've saved as many people as the Palm Beach Surf Club. I mean, I guess I've probably saved 30 or 40 people yeah. in, in a period of living there for 15 years or so. They're just, you know, it's, uh, it's, a, it's sort of like an institution that I think has been taken to an extreme where they do um, that. It's a social club, really. Mm. As you know, in Noosa, every beach, that's where they, they have the piece of prime real estate. Yeah, I mean, Noosa, prime example, I mean, it's on the prime example. Yeah. And, you know, they make money out of that. So, and that's what how they basically um, perpetuate the whole thing. Mm. And I don't really begrudge them that. I'm just, you know, from my point of view, I've never used a surf club for anything and I, I will never yeah. have anything to do with them. So did you do any other sports at school or was it just the ocean? Whatever we were all doing in, in our class, but they were all basically around the ocean. I didn't really, um, I didn't play football. I didn't do anything. And, you know, when I got older and um, I, I played a lot of tennis, but um, that cause problems because it's too much uh, for a tall guy like me it was too much stress on my back yeah so then I stopped playing competitive tennis and even recreational tennis and ever since I stopped that and I got rid of all the horses off the farm my back's been just fine because you know you can do things to either aggravate your yeah. back or you can do things to and it seems like every man gets a problem with his back maybe it's every person but in a, the most of the men I know at some stage, my oldest son now has really bad back pain. And I told him a few weeks ago that I, I think he should maybe back off the tennis, you know? Yeah. Because throwing a ball high in the air and actually getting over the top of it is really. So, yeah, that's a. It's just a different way to do things, and I don't really. Um, I think you've really got to, as you get older, you've got to temper and hone your whole sort of ability as to what you can do and what you can do well to give you satisfaction and what and have your priorities very clear. So priorities are everything, I think. It's, it's, it's interesting you say that because I'm 45 now and I'm so focused on longevity now, you know, yeah. in terms of like I, I want to be doing what I'm doing for 30, 40 years, but it's yeah. just... I, you know, I guess when you, you know, I know your thoughts on contact sport, but ex rugby player, and you know, you just think you're bulletproof, and you and you run through walls, and you do stupid things. But now I'm like, if this is going to hurt me, and I'm, you know, it's going to injure me, then I just don't want any well, part of it. It's a responsibility, and it's also once you've got a family, you do have to be responsible. I mean, because you've got to put food on the table for a starter, yeah, and then you've also got to be able to be a good dad. So. You know, I mean, for me, it just took a long time for me to realise that, probably for the age where you are now, where I just 
you know, and we had a good tennis court on the farm and I played a lot of competitive tennis. And in the end, I just went, you know, I was spending a day every week <laughs> with chronic back pain, you know. It's nothing worse. No, it's, it's, well, there's other places you can have a place. <laughs> That was certainly one of them, so. So when, when did you, and, and I don't want to get to your competitive career yet, but, but when did you realise that surfing was your thing and, and, and knew that that's what you wanted to do with your life? Um, I think pretty much right from, from, the, from when I was 10. That's really what I wanted to do is surf well. And I had, you know, a next door neighbour who was a good surfer and I used to sort of idolise him and then and then, then went and I had other people that were sort of like heroes, you know, like Jim Farrelly and I tried to sort of be like him and then another guy called Phil Edwards in America and I tried to be like him. It just, you know, I think that's the sort of thing with kids that they have. It's quite okay for kids to... Um, Totally copy someone. Yeah. But to emulate everything that that person does, you know, the way they talk, the way they think, the way they do their activity, whatever it is, and then surfing, you know, it's just, I would try to be, uh, I remember very clearly trying to be Major Farrell, which was hard because he was only five foot something. Yeah. And I was over six foot, so I was, <laughs> I didn't look anything like it, you know. So In your mind, you did, though. <laughs> In my mind, I was just trying to do that, but I think that. It's very important to really um, to focus on what really gives you um, happiness, what makes you feel good, what makes you feel good. Okay, this, this, this was something that for me was um, something, you know, I could really do it and I could obviously do it very well and it was very easy to, um, to walk away from um, school or to get more into competition and then very history of your sport and I did the history of surfing of course and then you know it's just more a matter of having all of them and then he said then you can go anywhere you want you know which is autobiography like the last book Church of the Open Sky which is basically just surf stories yeah and so and so it's been a you know a very good um, I think doing it like that made pretty much a good solid stepping stone from one thing to another, to another, to when you really feel like you're really um, you're achieving something, you know, you're doing something in your life that is constructive, you know. So I was, I was chatting to you before camera about what I call finding your why, your passion, and you were quite surprised, as, as was your daughter, that a lot of people out there, a lot of guys out there don't know what it is. Um, just want to get your your take, if you, on on how you've managed to stay true to your passion throughout all your life. I think what was quite interesting to me through Church of the Open Sky was a lot of your former peers who were you know top level surfers just stopped surfing at certain points mm. of their lives. So 
How have you managed to, how important is it to you and, and how have you managed to sort of stay as close to the ocean as you have? Well, I think you really have to um, I think a passion just sort of doesn't come out of the night. I think a passion is something that you, you develop. You, you really you, you get into something that's really good to try a lot of things, you know. Like maybe, I don't think surfing is the only thing you can have a passion about. I mean, for me, it just happened to be you know, that, that one little niche that worked perfectly for me where I could you know, really um, just express what I was feeling each each day when I was in the water. And I surfed every day, all day, pretty much, and stayed away from school, and that's what I did. So I think it was times in your life when you've really got to try every try all these things to see which thing is going to going to be the best for you. But when you find something, you've really got to hone it. You've got to really develop. A, an understanding of the activity, you know, like, and I don't mean competitively, I mean just, you know, an under, I mean, for me, it came as an understanding of the ocean, which is obviously why we live here and do what we do, is because, you know, um, I need that, uh, that, that involvement to make me feel whole, and still I wake up every morning at uh, dawn to see what's going on with the with the wind and with the swell and you know it doesn't take long but it's important to get to make this passion develop so as you can really get an understanding enough to be able to really give you some satisfaction to make you feel like oh this is it's so even then you know I just was surfing with a good mate and you know it only takes I find now it's like it's almost like less is best. I get ten waves, and three or four of them are good ones, and I just go, "That's it. I feel fine. I don't need to be out there all the time chasing it, trying to get that little piece of space. I need to be able to know that I can catch a few waves that make me feel really good, and that's 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 pretty much." how it all works for me and I think that's how it works with any passion you know like and as you get older you don't need to do it I need to do it all the time I mean I need to every day I need to know what's going on out there and sometimes it's what's going on out there is really um, not even worthwhile going there (laughs) and other times it's really important to go near it so you know I mean, it's a, you're a slave to it. <laughs> you are. You're a slave to it because um, you know it's it's something that is such a deep. Uh, it's a pretty heavy drug. Surfing, really, bloody heavy drug. You know, like you've got to, and it's really hard. I mean, I've got friends that have finally managed to put it down. You know, not do it all the time. Yeah. But boy, it's hard. Yeah, right. Like, you know, I'm addicted. I mean, I haven't been since I was 10. And I'm fully admitted, I can't. That's what I do, you know, is every day I do that and every day I surf. And luckily I have um, enough um, money to be able to make that. And sometimes not a lot of money to do it, but enough money to be able to pull it off, you know. 
I'm laughing because I often might when someone says I want to have a meeting the next day, I'm like, oh, okay, let me just check my calendar, but mainly it's the tie chart for wins. <laughs> What's happening from a forecast perspective and say, well, you know, three o'clock's better or in the morning's better. It just well, depends I, on what's I, coming. I do the same thing. I've got to do something on Friday tomorrow, but it's was, you know, it depends on the waves, you know. I mean, I'd rather, I try to keep it as loose as I can. Yeah. And then when it's, when it's good, I can jump, you know. And that's, 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 that's where you come to over anything that you're passionate about, you know. My priorities are to ride a few quality waves every day if I had my way of running. But sometimes it just doesn't happen, and that's okay too. You learn to be able to go, that's all right. Didn't work out, you know. I don't care, you know. I mean, I prefer it, but it's okay, you know. So something else that came through in the latest book is your love for skiing, which I wasn't aware of. When did you first start skiing, and, and from you know what, what I picked up, you spent a couple of months every year in Idaho. So when, when did you first come across skiing? Um, Nineteen sixty-seven. Oh wow! I had fell in love with a girl. <laughs> Obviously, they're always always fall in love with a girl. <laughs> I fell in love with this girl, and she was a uh, she was Australian skiing champion. And she um, she took me down to the mountains and introduced me to skiing and um, gave me a pretty good grounding. And, uh, and then it just kept developing from there because it's another thing that is a, a pretty deep hole. Yeah. You know, because it's so satisfying to do. To do well is really, a, you know, and to understand the fall line, which is exactly what surfing is. You surf, you surf every wave relevant to the fall line. Yeah. That's the same thing. So with skiing, you know, I ski every turn relevant to the fall line. And, you know, it's the only, there's no difference really in the fact that you can. Sometimes you can, um, you know, get away and cheat a little bit that your weight actually is a little bit too far back or something. But most times you've just got to be right on your, your centre's got to be right down, right through your, the centre of your body, right onto the, onto the snow. So, as, you know, when you're doing whatever turns, you know, you, you obviously turn much sharper to slow down on your fall line. And then when the... When it opens up and it's more gradual slope, then you can let the skis go and you can not turn so critically. So yeah, I I, I love skiing. I ski every year for at least two months. This year I skied for two months, but it wasn't a very good year in in Idaho this year. The worst one I've had for a few years. But that's okay too, you know. I mean, it means I'm skiing on hard pack stuff. Yeah. And I'm not skiing what I normally ski, which is deep snow up to my knees every day. So it's rare that I don't get that. But this year, as I say, it was mostly, I think I've got 15, 15 or 18 days in two months. Yeah. Pretty poor. But still okay, you know. That's the other thing about when you're playing with nature like this. Um, you don't care, you know, you just, you're never going to fight nature. Mm. You're never going to win. So all you got to do is you just go, hey, it's no good for us. Just today is, you know, we have a season where there was only 19 days of powder in two months. That's what it is. Yeah, it is what it is, yeah. you know. 
relax and enjoy it for what it is. Did you, did you, I'm assuming you did, but, um, you know, when snowboarding came through, was it 80s or 90s, did you give that a crack and, and then go back to skis? Oh, or? yeah, very, very much so. Well, Sun Valley is a bit too, too steep for, um, um, yeah, you know, um, Sun Valley is too steep for most snowboarding. Yeah. And critical off every side. So I, um, I had a pretty bad accident there finding that out because it's not, it's just, it's too critical. But I did snowboard a lot around the world. The company that we were involved with, um, that I was involved with, was a company called Oxbow, and they were mm. a French clothing company that actually bought the rights to the first snowboard in Europe. Oh, wow. So I had good boards right from the start with hard edges mm. and really in good shape, which was great, but, I mean, it didn't really... Uh, it didn't save me when you get a situation where one of the snow guns at Sun Valley was blowing water instead of ice. Water instead of snow. Yeah. That's what they normally do is turn the snow, turn the snow. And I hit the ice and just lost the edge. I went over a cliff and cracked my head open. Oh, wow. No, and Ty had to come and find me. I was unconscious. It was a horrible time in my life that one coming back. But... You know, you come back, you know, yeah. it's, all, it's all good. Um, yeah. And I don't know what else you ask me about snowboarding. Well, I don't do it now because, you know, like the, all the skis, as you know, these days are so wide. It's so much easier. <laughs> they just, and, and they just do the job of a snowboard, you know, with two edges to go to the right and two edges to go to the left. So. I can be going very fast and I've got this incredible um, ability just with minor adjustments to really carve turns. And they're super short as well. I mean, my... Yeah, very short. When I was in... I, I took my son, we did a bit of a boys' trip to New Zealand. I think it was last year. And I've snowboarded pretty much since I could access snow. And he said, well, let's learn how to ski together. And I was like, oh, shit. Because I, I first learned to ski when I was probably 20 years before in Europe, yeah. but in the thin pencil things, which was super tricky. And then you went near powder and then it was just a, a disaster. Uh, and then hopped onto the new shorter skis and I found it I know so much where, easier. Well, you have to, um, yeah, well, that's it. All the modern skis are wider and shorter. Mm. And they're more like snowboards. They've been very influenced by snowboards. And snowboards were very influenced by surfing. So it's interesting the way the whole sort of, um, I should just say, well, every, everything I think when it comes to writing a medium is all about how dense the medium is. Like if it's a hard medium, you need, you need two edges or a harder edge. Where it's a soft medium, you can get away with just one edge. Yeah. So. It's really interesting. I mean, I, I think that, um, and it's never really, you know, the skiing industry has never given any credit to the fact that it all came from snowboarding and surfing. They just think that they developed wider skis, but they developed wider skis because the public wanted them because they wanted them easier. Yeah. You know, and more user-friendly. So, yeah. So on the topic of deep passions i'm surrounded by musical instruments here are you, are you a muso or is that part of the family is that someone else in the family yeah i know i am we all are yeah i mean uh yeah we all are 
So, and we all play at sort of some period every day or two, you know. Yeah. Bryce right now is, you know, he's injured from a really big, big sort of wipeout at Backbridge the other day when it was 10 foot. There's only him and one other person out there. And it's pulled his toe. I think cord must have got caught around his toe or something. Yeah. Anyway, it's fucking right up. So I don't know what's happened there. I, I just, uh, but from my point of view, it's always been about just uh, strumming and playing nice songs. And, you know, we've got really good, uh, there's a lot of people that sort of come by and we couple you know, have really great influences as far as music. And Bryce is really into uh, pretty much all of my old music. And Bo too, but, and Bo plays very well, as you probably know, he does a lot, he's sort of more commercial and he does, you know, does gigs where he gets paid and stuff. So he's, I think it's good, you know, I, I really like, music is more, it's more like serving again, you know, people's writing wine, you know, whatever the wine is. Yeah. And, you know, you can step out on it at some stages and you can come back in and, you know, there's other people that are keeping the rhythm. Bryce plays in a good band with some other people, local people around here. He keeps himself busy. Everybody around here keeps himself busy doing all sorts of work and that's, I think it's great. Yeah. I love very much encouraging that they all do do that, you know. Because music's always been really close to my heart and very close to to the whole surfing thing, you know. Mm -hmm. So many um, great users in surfing that have done it forever, you know. I just, you know, I can name lots and lots of them that have been really, and they've been very, very good, good influences on me too, you know. Because most of it, most of sort of teaches you to. To sort of take things as it comes and really give when you're, when you're, you know, whatever key you're playing in, to really stay inside the key. So it's got a lot of discipline to it. Mm -hmm. so it's, I think it's, I think it's really good for uh, surfers to get into the music because, let's face it, that, could, that is a really deep hole as far as becoming a bachelor. Yes. For so many people, that's fantastic. Music's great. Magic. It's a, it's a one rabbit hole that I have not gone down. I love music so much, and I've tried to stop playing guitar so many times, but it's it's on. It's it's on. Well, you got a very high on the to do list. You've got to spend so long to be able to get proficient. Yeah. Much like surfing. Yeah. You've got to spend all this time before you get back any reward. Yeah. So it doesn't happen. You know, you can't think, oh, I'm going to play for. We got a friend around here who's just started. Uh, Six months ago, he was saying to me how frustrating it is because he's just playing every day all day. He really wants to get good and he's getting good, but he wants more quicker, you know. So it's really hard, you know, it's just one of those things. You know? But I mean, yeah, I mean, I just look at the surfing analogy. I know some mates want to start surfing in their 40s and they, you know, they'll spend an hour, but they'll be spend maybe 90 seconds doing that activity of, you know, the pop up the wave if they get it, if there's no one on the inside, they don't nosedive. So yeah. the amount of hours you've got to log 
to actually really want it from us. It's a lot of investment. It's that you're going to be passionate about. You know, it takes a long time to get the rewards, you know. It just doesn't happen like that. You can't do it. And I guess that's what the, the, the yardstick is for how good the rewards are, is how long it actually takes to become proficient. How long does it take to become proficient? Then once you do become proficient, then you get some rewards. You know? Yeah. But boy, it's uh, it's, it's a deep hole. Music's a really deep hole. <laughs> Yeah, music's a really good, especially for me because I'm just had, I had such a great time with it in the 60s and thought I was getting pretty good yeah. and then realised that I knew fucking nothing. <laughs> and then, you know, then say, oh, no. And it's, uh, so it's got a lot of frustrations to it. That one. But I think it's really good. I love it. So let's pull all the way back now. So you started surfing. When did you start competing? And I guess when did you realize that you had this gift and could win contests? I think I started winning contests when I was like 15. Yeah. I won a, uh, an Australian uh, Open Championship because Legit was the best surfer. He didn't go in it because he already had a free ticket to a and that's the open as men's. The open as men's, yeah. yeah. And I, I was just a kid. But I certainly, well, obviously, no one was event, no one a free ticket around the world. It was given by what was then the richest um, richest guy in Australia, uh, Sir Frank Packer. Was that Packer? I was way okay. And he let me, uh, he just set me totally loose on it all. I went to Hawaii and then on to Europe and then back, you know, it was just great. Mm-hmm. Only in one direction, but it was pretty good. Yeah. And so I did that and then uh, mm-hmm. had a great time. So do you, do you remember, because I remember as a Grommy growing up, we all wanted sponsors or stickers on our boards. I don't know if that was a thing in, in your day. And again, in your book, you, you mentioned making T-shirts with a Weber logo on or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah, who, yeah. Who, who was your first sponsor and, and did you feel like a rock star at that time? My first sponsor was a guy called Gordon Woods who made surfboards in Brookvale. Yeah. And Bob Evans, who made the first surfing movies in Australia, convinced him to take me on as an apprentice so I could learn to shape. Yeah. So and how old were you, 15 then? Or? 15. Yeah. yeah. So by the time I was 16, that's what I was doing. I, mean, I was going in there and learning how to shape every day. And you know, shaping boards for this big department store in Sydney, and they must have been horrible. I can't remember how I turned them out. But, you know, I'm not, and then, and then it all worked out pretty fine from there because I had a, uh, you know, that that was a good thing to do to have an understanding of how to actually shape surfboards. And by the time I moved to Byron, which was 1969, yeah. You know, I could build boards on the farm and, you know, I was very much back to nature, very alternate sort of stuff. And uh, that was a, you know, you know, and I, when I won the world championship for the first time, or only time, in uh, California, I had a sponsor called Weber, as you doing Weber surfboards. He was paying me every week just to be his show pony star. No, he was in America and I was in Australia. Yeah. And that worked out pretty well because uh, 
you know, I had money for basically doing nothing, you know. I had to do two trips to America every year, which was a pleasure anyhow. I got to do all the things that, you know, you like to do when you're in the States. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, I had a really good, uh, it was a good life. And Dewey was the guy who was, um, you know, he made everything happen for me pretty much in America like that, you know. You know, cars and houses and places yeah. to, so he was good to me. You know, he didn't give me a house, but he let me live at his house. And he had me use all his cars, so it was great, you know. So you you were 19 when you won that world title, right? Yeah, yeah. So you must have felt pretty bulletproof looking back. Yeah, uh, I felt pretty good about that. <laughs> well, it was, I, but I think in those days when you, with youth, you know, you tend to think bulletproof is a, a bit of a catchphrase, really, because I just thought that I was, um, that I was the best. Yeah. And that I couldn't be defeated and that I was going to, you know, do it all again, you know. <laughs> and, you know, then you, you get the endorsement of winning a world championship and then you feel like, well, see, I told you so, you know. <laughs> so that was, that was really bizarre to have, as you say, to make me feel bulletproof or to make me feel like I'd really achieved something. So then after that I was just like, what a role I was on then for so many years, you know, yeah. just... And it was great, you know, because I could live on the farm in Byron Bay. I'd go over to America for, you know, one at the start of summer and one at the end of summer and do a month tour over there, the East Coast. And so basically all I was doing was taking dealers to lunch and it was a cool job, you know, it was really good. And he, he was good pretty much right to the end, Dewey. He was a good guy. Treated me well. Yeah. You know, I mean, unfortunately, when you do a lot of those things, you don't realise how how wonderful it is and you tend to blow the money before you should really, you know, I should have uh, probably consolidated more before I started spending too big. <laughs> but that's okay. 19, man. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, so you make some... You make some silly moves, don't you? you know? Yeah. That's the reality of it all. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, you know, and, and you can't put, what's the saying, you can't put an old head on young shells as well. That's what happened to me. You know, I did some really silly things. Even that Chevy Camaro convertible that I won in the 67 World Championship, I smashed it up and I just walked away. <laughs> You know, I think it's probably worth a hundred grand these days. You know, <laughs> I rolled it and I just thought, oh, that's fucked. And I just left. Just, she'll be right, yeah. <laughs> Hitchhiked back to town and that was out near Las Vegas. So I just went. And then, you know, when I got home and I realised that I'd done the wrong thing. But by then you'd done it and you can't do anything about it because you're totally blown it, you know. No, it was interesting. You know, life, life's interesting because... But all these things that come along that you just make the stupidest decisions sometimes. And really, you should be just sort of, you, know, you should be drawn and quartered for the things you do, you know. Just why did I do that? You know? Do you, I was actually thinking about that with your with your journals when you when you were doing your research for your books and you read back of things you did or decisions you yeah. made or 
I mean, do you just shake your head and think like, what the fuck was I thinking? Yeah, sometimes I do it. Sometimes I, you know, I mean, even uh, even these days with, with the way I handle sort of certain things, we've got a pretty big property inland here, like 7,000 acres. And, you know, I make, you know, it's the worst decision I ever do. I ever did getting into a big cattle property because I didn't have any understanding. Yeah. And I didn't know how to run it, and I didn't know any, you know, I didn't have anyone that I could sort of say, well, you're going to run the place. I tried, and then they did the wrong thing. It's just, you just make, I think it's uh, all life's a bit of a stumbling block, you know. You go, oh, well, I think I'm going to do this, and it's a really good idea. It seems like a really good idea at the time. And then you just fuck up, you know. Just, and you go, God, why did I do that? You know, I mean, I tell you, with the with the farm, it's just was, you know, and now it's just sort of like the other day I wanted to, all this timber in here is all, um, not the miners, but the the trim mm. and the, the picture around everything. It's silky oak, you know, and I cut those trees down on the farm. Wow. And the other day I just cut down two big round silky oaks, like this round at the mm. bottom like 100 foot tall wow. and just <laughs> and now we're going to take them to town and get them milled so as we've got silky oak in the new place up there oh is that you set off to a fire you're busy rebuilding up there well we are going to rebuild now but mainly because the boys want it and, you know that no it's not that into it but Bryce and Bo really would like to see the farm stay together yeah and I'd like to too because you know, and we'll do a different sort of house, you know, without, you know, where it'll be just sort of flat and not up and down stairs, like try and make it sort of old people friendly instead, <laughs> which is a bit weird for me to say. That's, that's kind of where my head's at right now. I'm thinking oh, I'm going to have to uh, change this and uh, do some, you know, and, and say, so, and also get someone to build it where, you know, that the cutting the silky oak and sending it into Grafton to get milled, that'll probably be, I hope, the extent of the development of the involvement that I have to do. Yeah. Because I'll just pay people. Outsource, outsource, outsource. Yeah. Because it's right now, because it's going to be a standalone house, we're building right in the middle of the property, like a mile from anywhere. Yeah. So we have to get rid of all the trees for like a half a mile around everything. And also, we'd have to uh, have to go standalone power. Yeah. Standalone power is not something that I know anything about. So we're trying to get expertise on that. Mm. Completely off the grid. Completely off the grid. Well, I mean, it'll just be battery power. And, yeah. yeah. I think that's, uh, we think that's the best way to go because it's just... The other way, it's just not doing anything for anyone, you know, like I, I built a house there. The original beautiful house was um, really, a, really a, a very, very beautiful building. But the problem was that I put it on the edge of where we could get the closest electricity. Yeah. Because in those days, I paid for four power poles at ten thousand dollars a pole. And when was that? Seventy three or seventy three. Yeah. So I 
My attitude to that was that we built there on the end of a big bluff that looked for probably I don't know, 50 to the, to the end, to 50 miles. But the problem with all of that was that other people came in because they were right on the edge of the property. They built a house to tap into my electricity because the electricity pole was on their land because we were coming across. Yeah. But they weren't even there when I went there. So all these people moved in, there's like, and all of the neighbours kept, they'd cut their places up in 100 acre lots. Yeah. So I'm sort of in this, I'm going, you know, so now we've had to move right to the middle of our building, the middle of the, of the whole uh, farm yeah. to get away from people. Because, I mean, we have enough people down here, which is great down here at the beach, but when we go to the farm, we don't want any people. Yeah. We want it quiet, you know, we want, you know, we don't want to hear traffic, we don't want to hear, so. And here now it's getting really busy, much more so than it was. Yeah. Well, because, you know, not just because of COVID, but because um, more and more people are moving to the coast. And I can't blame, I don't blame them, I'm just saying, as an observer, I have the ability to move away from all that. Yeah. So that's what my wife and I, and I don't, I don't, the kids will probably stay here mainly, you know, because that's what they do. The kids, kids love it here. They're all surfing. So, but it's, as I said before, it's not critical for me to surf all the time. And, your, your cup is full. Yeah. And I really think it's good to do all the other things, you know. I love building things. And, you know, I, and I like, you know, my life is full, but I have, uh, mainly it's still full with surfing, but I think I can change that as time goes by. As you get older, I think, you know, less is best. Yeah. Less you need, you know. I mean, I don't need them. I don't need them any waves, even these days, you know. Somebody said the other day, they said, they said oh, that's, that's three good waves you've had in that. And I said, yep, two more and I'm going in. <laughs> and they go, oh, really? I said, yeah. Save the engine. I've had it. You know? <laughs> no, it's just not. I've had it, you know, and I don't really. And Mark Richard was out in the water with me then, you know, yeah. and he said, oh, that last wave was really good. I said, yeah, am I? You know, and I guess what? I'm, guess what? I'm going in. You can stay out here. I'm not. <laughs> He's up here picking up surfboards from his. He uses the same um, surfboard uh, glasser and we've got a really good guy in the Amber. Yeah. And so we all use him. But it's hard to get any work now because, as I say, everybody has become jo all the JobKeeper money's going to hit this guy to get a new boy. You know? That's good. <laughs> good old JobKeeper. So your competitive career was pretty short um, and, you know, chose to walk away from that. Yeah. Um, but but what was interesting to me that you stayed involved when the ASP was formed uh, as part of the board there, helping them with competitive well, only For There was two reasons to this. The main reason was because I was working for Oxbow and Oxbow had asked me how they could really get involved in surfing. They weren't a surfing company at all. And I said, well, what we can do is we can put on a World Longboard Championship. Yep. And a tour. And make, make it have to pick up the tab, you know. Oh, okay, fine. You know, we did a budget. We made it all connect. We connected all the dots. And so 
boss said to me, he said, well, in order to make sure that it's all going to run fine for us, you better get on the board <laughs> and make sure there's yeah. no, nothing goes weird with this. Yeah. So that's what I did. I, I joined the ASP board and I flew to meetings and did all the stuff that you have to do to be a member of the board of the ASP. Yeah. But the other thing that I really wanted to do it for was because I had a couple of mates, the guy who owned uh, one of the owners of Rip Curl, called Doug Warbrick, and uh, also Michael Graham Cassidy, who was uh, then the president of the ASP. And he said, on the day when I said to me one night, you know, like, we really wanted to do something with Long Warby. So you're going to have to put it together because it's your fucking baby. <laughs> and I said, yeah, okay. So we did. Yeah. So therefore I got involved in all of whatever was necessary to make it happen, you know, like uh, write the judging criteria, criteria write the, uh, and just do the structure of it so as we could get other sponsors involved in the competitions. So was that just from the longboarding perspective or on the shortboard side as well? No, just from the longboarding. I was only, when it came to that, I was really on it. I was the, the longboard, uh, whatever they call it. Yeah. So I was just sort of that. Everything to say on the longboard thing. I'd still vote as a normal member of the board, but that was the thing that I was really giving my um, input on that everybody would basically say, yeah, okay, fine, that reckons that's the best idea, that's what we're going to do. So I did that all the time. I worked out. I did that for two years. It was a good thing to do because I, I think we, we had a very, it, it's even the whole foundation. So, but I became really disenchanted even with that, with the way it was going. You know, it was, you know, we had big arguments um, in the, on the boardroom about, uh, about tricks on longboards. And I was not a supporter of tricks. So define a trick, sort of, so well, 360s and that kind of thing from a long um, perspective? Or? Yeah, but more so the things like trying to make it go. Okay, yeah. And things that was, I think they were sort of, I, I, I think they made it, they were trying to turn it into a more of a circus. And so when it went to this sort of, it's a guy called Graham Stableberg who's still in New York, who still runs the, he runs the WQS these days in WS, WSL. He, um, Stableberg firmly believes that, you know, that progressive longboard surfing should be tricks. Yeah. You know, like all those things you just said and the air and stuff. And I, and I really, uh, I just said, okay, well, I don't want to play. So what's your take on the, I mean, the WSL, so, you know, obviously the top tier shortboard is that it's just, I mean, from my perspective, it's just an air reverse show, right? I mean, the guys, if if, if you watch, you know, the guys put out clips and it's it's fascinating what they do, but it's just after the 48th air reverse, you go, well, like I understand how difficult that is, but is is that going to win a contest? I, I think it possibly could. I don't. I don't profess to know enough to understand it. I just, and I know that the last few days have had a major restructure and I don't even know what it is. Yeah, there's some knockout sort of best of three. I haven't actually looked at it. Yeah, they're going to have one contest that that 
gives the world champion. Yeah. But, I mean, I, I didn't – I just don't believe that the competition is particularly good or particularly representative of where surfing's at. Well, you know, most of the people around here, if you told them, you know, there's probably, I don't know, a couple of hundred surfers around here, um, you tell them about what was going on with the WQS, they'd just go, who gives a shit? Yeah. We don't care, you know. But, you know, and one of them here, we've got a little kid called Morgan who's just um, made the tour, made the cut, and, you know, everybody's not treating him any different <laughs> to the way he was six months ago. He's just a super talented little surfer that we all love, you know. Yeah. So I don't, you know, I don't see whether particularly where competition's very representative of where surfing's at, and I don't think it's a very good thing because if you get everybody out there in the water and it's like dog-eat-dog trying to catch every wave, you know, trying to fight for this and fight for that, that's all basically competition-orientated. And I don't think that's, I don't think that's a healthy thing. I, I, I don't see a lot of good that comes out of competition, particularly around here, and that's really the only place I see it these days. There's, we don't have any contests. We've never held a surfing contest at the point. Mm. It was banned in the 70s and it will never ever, you yeah. know, and actually people put it up to council here. So, so. And, and they all contact people like me and other people around here and they go, what about having a surfing contest at the point? <laughs> no, fucking <laughs> It's never, never going to happen. Yeah. And I hope it never does happen because it's silly. You know what, you know, there's enough going, enough people going on out there and unfortunately, you know, as, as we all know, there's certain people that are very, very competitive about this, you know, Brazilians particularly that seem to want yep. more than their share and make it harder and harder for everyone. But basically it's okay. It's I, I just don't think that it's something that I particularly endorse and I don't like where it's taken um, taken surfing and I'm, you know from my perspective it looks to me like they're having a real the one guy Kirk who's put up all the money yep. for it I think he doesn't want to know anymore you know he's just sort of you know he, I mean how much money has he got to keep throwing it at him because it's not making any money for him and it's certainly not making any credibility I mean I, I think you know the whole thing with that organisation is that people just don't, the surfers don't give a shit. They really don't care. And, you know, and I, and I agree with it totally. I don't care at all whether what they want to do, you know. Is it good for surfing? No. Is it particularly good surfing? Sometimes, yes. But most times where you've got what you said, you know, about small or younger Brazilians trying to do as many airs on one wave and pump this and I just don't think it's very pretty. It's not artistic. It's not what I call good surfing. I'd, I'd much rather watch, you know, Laurie Towner or my sons pulling into a 10-foot barrel. And these, I tell you, a lot of the people on that tour wouldn't even bloody, they wouldn't go anywhere near the waves that my guys get around here. Yeah. yeah. I'm terrifying. <laughs> you know, I'm terrified. It's me just watching. 
Yeah. But I mean, just it's in, I mean, in, if you just look at the surf brand industry, like from I mean, I know COVID's been been catastrophic for everyone, but even before that, I think from my understanding, all the big brands are struggling. You know, like Nike sold Hurley, all the other brands of brand. I mean, Billabong was sold for a dollar, whatever it was. The whole surf brand industry seems to have been struggling anyway, even before what's happened. Yeah, I think it was too. But there was a few really good moves, you know, like like Ripco going to Kathmandu was really good for the people that I know in Ripco. Yeah. Financially, that was the right time to cash in, you know. So I don't, and I do, what do I think about all that? I think just the people that held on, I suppose, like like Bob Hurley held on and did his thing, you know, that was sort of. All sorts of different people that I don't even know them very well, so I can't really even comment. I just think the surfing industry, it's its a weird one anyhow, you know. I mean, how much, you know, how many pairs of board shorts can you own, you know? Yeah. How many pairs of board shorts do you really want, you know, and do you need the latest fashion? You know, I mean, I guess there's places where people buy just on fashion, and that's different, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I don't think those are the core surfers because, I mean, for me, it's just, well, I'll get last year's season for half the price. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's fine for me, you know, as long as, as, long as it functions and, it, you know, it works well in the water. No, they have uh, they have a really certain, it's a different way to do it, you know. Yeah. It's a fashion item, you know, that they can sell, you know, basically promoting it as a fashion item and using sort of surf stars. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> but my, uh, you know, my son's sponsored by, do you know Paul Nade? No. He's South African, he owns. Nordia. Yeah. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, you don't call him Nade. No, no, no. Who does he own? What company? He owns Bissler. Oh, okay. Didn't realise that. And a really lovely guy, you know, and he's priced as sponsor. Oh, brilliant. Where's he based? Uh, Laguna Beach. Okay. And just always been a really lovely man. Not that I've known him very well mm. for years, but I mean, I know him reasonably well now. And he's just a really nice guy. In fact, I was supposed to, I was supposed to talk to him this morning, but I didn't get to it. But I'll try again tomorrow. It's hard to try and connect. You know. <laughs> morning, here, afternoon, yeah. there, you've got to make sure that you, he's come back from lunch and you're talking to him about something that's serious. <laughs> he, he actually used Vizsla to sell um, my last book in, a, in America to the surfing world. Oh, wow. Which was good because um, firstly it meant that I was going to get paid. No one was going to screw you. And therefore I had to, I kept the American rights. I didn't sell them the penguin. I sold the penguin the Australian rights. Yeah. And uh, that was that was a different deal, but it, it all worked out for everything. It's just that I've got to get back to Paul and give him some figures, and you know I just haven't uh, I haven't done my figures today because I was trying to. I've been working on sort of a, the bushfire rating for the new house at Benoida because these days you've got to really the bushfire things. Mm. So, you know, everybody's really on your case. You know, you've got to really make sure you do everything, everything perfect. Either that or they just they knock the DA right on the head. So, you know, we're trying to do that. 
they haven't finished that today, even you know, that's another. But I'm going to get that going so I can go and get started. It's a trip. Everything's a trip. <laughs> so something that comes across so strongly just listening to you talk and your books is your love of the art of shaping um, and your connection to shaping. And, you know, for me as a, I guess, a passionate surf, it's something that I've never got involved in. I don't know if it's just a, a generation or two too late. It's a good thing for everyone to do the shaping mm. and so forth. I mean, because you, get, you have an idea and then you can follow the idea through it, even if you fuck it up. It mm. doesn't matter. It's just a really satisfying thing to do. I, I advise everybody to at least have a go at one stage in their life, you know, their surfing life, because and then to surf it, you know. I, I had a bit of a bad trot here for a month. I kept taking one of the Donald Takeyama longboards out in really waves that were too big for it. Yeah. And I broke two of them in a month. And I didn't have any longboards here at all left. Yeah. So I ended up surfing one of Taylor's boards, one of his firewire boards, while, you know, which one. And then what I did was I shaped a new board yeah. right out here in the, in, the, in the national park over the road with a couple of saw horses. Crazy. Not great. <laughs> It's like flashbacks in 1960. <laughs> and what are the dims on that? It's uh, nine foot four by 22. Yeah. Really wide. And I mean, that's a really, I mean, somebody was just saying out in the water today, the guy who polishes for, uh, for Popey, our local guy who the MRs are picking up his boards this afternoon. Mm. He said, I oh, said, that board looks really good now. I said, yeah, you know, considering I shaped it under a tree. <laughs> You know, and you know, because everybody else is all into computers, yeah, and all this shit. You know, I just, you know, I have a feel for it to do with a longboard, and nothing really. I haven't changed them since. You know, I haven't changed them ever. I don't think it goes all the way back to that board from '67 when I won that contest. Although this one's this one's actually going to be nice and heavy because I put I got Burford's to give me a. At least a half inch string around the middle. Yeah. And I got a glass with two six ounce layers on it, so it's really gonna be heavy. But I don't give a shit. You know, the heavy is fine by me. I can I just want something that's gonna surf well. You yeah. Know? And if it's gonna, you know, sit in the water and be too heavy, that's okay too. You know? So Something that fascinated me when I came to Australia, which wasn't in South Africa, was the, the rack boards. You know, the, the, the one manufacturer like doing a model with all the dims and you just buy a stock board. Whereas we always went to a shaper. And then you look at the, you know, the surfboard warehouses of the world that push out $500 long boards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, which, I mean, you, you just... buy young ones. Yeah. I, I know your, your sons are there as well, but... Yeah, yeah, he's in there. Where, where do you think the... Because it's, I mean, for me, with, with my daughter who wants to buy a longboard, right, for $500 for a light epoxy board that she can carry at 15 compared to... Pretty good, isn't it? You, you can't fault it. No. But where, where, where do you feel, like, for the art of the true classic, like, you know, the tacky armors and all those... The, the the I guess the craftsmen. Where do you think they're going to fit in in the, in, in the market and the space for them? Well, they still fit in because as people get more efficient and more into, for instance, longevity, mm. then they really they require a higher performance board. So as soon as you start putting curves in the bottom, not concaves, but 
actual curves where yeah. the board sits in the water, then it's a whole different ball game. Like you've got to surf it. Um, you've got to stand on the board and really know what you're doing. Mm. So I think that sort of that's where the break comes when somebody gets good enough to understand what good longboarding really is. In other words, carving um, a really good, strong drop knee turn. And drop knee turns, as you probably know, are the, the forerunner of what turning was before we stood with our feet over the board and pushed on our heels or yeah. our toes. The drop knee turn is much more artistic, you know, and done by the classic people like Phil Edwards and Midget, you know, they were just... These guys were beautiful, artistic. Mm. And so if you want to surf artistic and get to a level of skill on a longboard that's not just, uh, a, you know, a trick or tr a series of tricks, then you really need to have um, you need to have boards with curves in the bottom so as they sit in the water. And then what you really need to do that is you – it's a board that – it is totally demanding. Mm. In other words, you can't cheat on a, on a board with curves in the bottom. You've got to surf really strong on the board and really know where you're going with it. You can't just sort of think, oh, this is just out here for a bit of fun. But there is, once people get better, a degree of people who just go, oh, this is fantastic, you know, because they, they, they'll work just as well in two-foot surfers of William. No. Well, you shouldn't really surf longboards in big surf. Yeah. I mean, I just learned that, as I said before, about breaking two in a month. You know. <laughs> well, it's, it's a shame for me because yeah, Takiyama was a super good friend of mine and I haven't got any of his boards left, you know. You mentioned in your last book that you had one over the mantelpiece. Was that? Did you actually take that up for a ride? Uh, I think he, he said he gave you one for your seven, 60th they, birthday. They were on the farm. Oh, were they on the farm? Yeah, they all got fried. Oh, man, they that's tragic. Burnt. All the boards on the farm got burnt. They were in the house. Nobody saved them. So, um, I mean, this is not a Takiyama. This is a, a board. The balsa board that's up here is yeah. above your head is a – you got to lean out to see it. Okay. Oh, there we go. Yeah. It's a uh, it's a pig board. What's that? From nineteen wide tail from nineteen fifty seven. Very popular in Sydney. Yeah. In the late fifties. Beautiful boards. Yeah. But you know they were just made for little layers for turning. You know, really good fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not uh, not the type of thing that you could. You couldn't ride them in any waves of any sub any substance, you know. And no, I never surfed this board at all. Anyway, it was just a, I just thought it was a pretty piece of balsa, really. Yeah. And uh, you know, we got it cleaned up and put it on the wall. It's been there ever since we moved in. It's good. It's nice to have good. You know, I was I always think that they're so such beautiful shapes that to have them in a house is really, yeah. you know. It's well, Ian's classic example. Yes, you know he's got him. He does beautiful house in Sunshine Beach. Hey, Martin, <laughs> he's got him. So you know, like people, you know, the people that it's like it's like people that enjoy classic cars. You know, yeah, they have good classic longboards. I mean, most of my boards got fried from the farm when the when they're fires, but. Luckily, I had a deal here with the, the local pub 
in Yamba, mm. and they've got five of my boards oh, that they've had forever. Yeah. So they're there, no matter what. You know? <laughs> and you know, he won't let me take them away. So you know, it's... what was that deal with the local pub? Just, just you know, it was over a beer one time. You know, I said he wanted some really nice surfboards to put in there, and I gave him, a, you know, thousand bucks a year twenty years ago. He just sends me a thousand bucks every year. So you know, just, here you go. There you go. Yeah, exactly. Free beers for life. Free beers for life. Well, no, not really. But <laughs> I get my thousand bucks every first of July every year. He gives me a. That's classic. What? <laughs> you go slow going down the hill. Okay. Yeah, okay. Okay. Um. Yeah. So something. Something else that that struck me as super interesting, uh, and I think you mentioned Richie Banner was that you had a business influence from an early day in terms of entrepreneurship. Now, I know. I don't not personally, but know of a lot of you know top guys now who are earning obscene amounts of money who end up broke but you seem to have got mentors along the way that helped you on the business aspect um and you know you mentioned richie with the books early on um just want to talk about all the different angles you went on and how you sort of knew that surfing was one angle but you also had to put food on the table on the other side well i don't think i was first of all i never really indulged in any heavy drugs you know, my indulgence as far as drugs came from buying a quality pot. Yeah. Was it, you know? So I don't think that I had sort of, you know, the indulgence of things like cocaine and smack, and which has been, you know, as you know, in, in the sporting world, a pretty heavy influence and had a great effect for yeah. so many people. So I didn't have that. And um, Bob Evans, who was my major influence when I was 16 um, from a commercial point of view you know he was the one who was telling me about uh, you know that I should what I should do with my money you know I mean I was writing a uh, um, every week I was writing a uh, a column for the Sunday Telegraph well that was a really um, very good for me because it was the discipline of having to write mm. and I didn't know how to write I mean you know I'd left school so and you know I was Australian champion and then I was world champion so I had the right tags that I could hang on the end of me but it was a really great thing to have um, to have somebody who would pull me back onto the straight and narrow whenever I'd sort of go like I remember when I bought the piece of land at Whale Beach, I didn't know whether to do it or not. You know, I was really hesitant because it was going to be, I had to get a loan from the Commonwealth Bank. Now, all these things that were really just, you know, alien to me and I didn't know anything about them. But, you know, not Richie, but, but Bob Evans was very instrumental to say that you've got to take risks and you've got to follow through and you've got to build the credibility in the business world so as people know that when you give your word, you've got to come through. Yeah. Like I did that the other day, you know, I just spent, you know, the first payment on clearing the land up there is 15 grand. Well, other people would freak out about that, but I mean, as far as I'm concerned, 
they did the job. Yeah. They've had two, a dozer and a bloody excavator up there for a week. And uh, I'm going to pay them and, you know, they, they know I'm going to pay them. So, you know, because my credibility in Grafton as somebody who pays the bills, because they're all just small towns, they're all just, you know, they know that if I say I'm going to pay them, even if I have to fucking go and get a loan, I'm going to pay them, you know. You get in a chill. So, you know, it's just more a matter of under, was to my mind understanding that um, from Bob Evans, when you give your word, you stick to it, mm. no matter what happens to you, no matter how much you've got to go through to pull it off, you do it, you know. So that was really good for me. That was a good principle, you know. I didn't. And I've never really faulted on that at all whenever it's, uh, you know, whenever it's come down to it, I've never not been able to pay a bill because I just make sure that, you know, when I give my word that I'm going to do it, I do it, you know, I pull it off no matter what. And it's been good because it's made me, uh, well, it's got me to a point where I've ever since that original loan to buy the land in, in Whale Beach, yeah. which was a pretty big Big buy. I mean, it was only about ten grand in those days to buy a piece of land right over the water in Whale Beach. Yeah. Um, since then, I've never borrowed anything. Of it. Haven't you? Wow. Well, because I always had money yeah. from surfing, so and I wasn't uh, at all frivolous with it. I've always used money as best as I possibly could, and I always had pretty good sponsors that paid me well. You know. Mm. I got paid really well from Oxbow and as a French company, you know, I was paid probably more money than I deserved, but, you know, they didn't know anything about surfing and I was, you know, I was their only connection to surfing. Yeah, because who were their high profile? Well, I mean, I know Laird was sponsored by them. That was later. Was that later? Mm. So was it... Uh... The only person that was there when I was there, I, I, firstly, I had the job. Yeah. And then a, a guy called Stuart... No, but I mean, the Stuart Bedford Brown, no, who's from Western Australia. Yeah, Bobby. He was the uh, he was the lead surfer, and uh, he was basically just a good-looking kid who did what he had to do, and I was basically his boss, you know. Which which was weird, and then we had all sorts of people like Robbie Page, and then mm-hmm. I gave Bo a job, and Bo was you know, so I could control a lot of what was going on with the with the budget every year as to and you know they're all getting paid obscene amounts of money for the day and age and what it was because yep. Oxbow was number one in Europe. We were doing more figures than um, than Quicksilver. Wow. So we were really we were really doing well for a while. Whatever happened to Oxbow? Sold to an Italian company. Okay. And they just destroyed um, uh, they destroyed it. But, you know, I mean, basically with most really good high-quality companies, when they they go to Italy, particularly in the surf world, they can't exist because there's no credibility in surfing in Italy. Yeah. So, they, you know, you start trying to sell Oxbow in the department stores and, you know, I mean, it was just... It was a shame because I really uh, I love the company so much. I just had an email from someone the other day, some company saying that they've just they've, they've bought the name and they're doing something. And was I interested in talking to them? But I just sent them back something saying no, I don't do that anymore. I have nothing to 
have nothing really to add. I don't. Mm. There's nothing I can give to uh, to anybody that's bought Oxbow. That's a that's a lost, uh, foregone chapter of my life. You know. I mean, it was good, and she was a wonderful lady who used to who owned the company. Was just so dynamic. She was just had these the whole top floor of this building in Bordeaux covered in flowers every day. They came, flew them in from all sorts of places. And, and you know, she, her whole thing was about inspiration. Yeah. And her design team would be designing with all these flowers just everywhere. Wow. You know, big tables and this, you know, doing fantastic things. We just... Ahead of its time. And now, you know, the whole, with the tech companies, that's, that's just the norm for, you know, the creative spaces. But back then, I'm assuming it wasn't. I don't think it, I don't think anybody else was doing that. You know, there was a designer that used to he used to wear a kilt and a cape. You know, just fantastic. Some of these people <laughs> that were just so influential in your life because they were just they were doing such beautiful clothes. You know, and none of it. You know, and she wouldn't. You know, nobody in Oxbow would even dream of creating a product in uh, in China. It had to be within the EEC. Yeah. Know, like and and because she said the, the product the the product was inferior. And she's right. There's shitty products out of shitty China. Just you know. And I remember she she said, Oh, you know, do you want to come to Greece with me? You know, and I I had something going on, I couldn't do it. She was buying the cotton in Greece off the side of one hill. She told me that she doesn't buy cotton off the southern slopes because that's no good. She only buys it off the northern slopes. And the cotton, you know, and I, yeah. it was just great stuff, you know. She was just, every time I'd turn around, Isabel would have some incredible spin, you know, to make my life just, uh, you know. And one time she told me it was just great. I, when I first joined the company, she said, so what I want you to do always is to, uh, you know, if you think somebody's a potential client, you buy them a bottle of champagne mm. and do something nice. And you know, and I said, I said, oh yeah, I'll buy, I'll buy some champagne. And I said, I, I think I can get a pretty good deal on some uh, on some stuff. And this is when we were coming to Australia, mm. get a pretty good deal on some cheap champagne, you know. And she said, you're not understanding that we are, there is only one champagne in the world. And that is French. Yeah. yeah. And you don't ever, ever buy people any other product. <laughs> yeah, sorry, Dan Murphy. She said, she said, you go out and spend it. So if yeah. you have to spend $100 on a bottle of champagne, so be it. But it's amazing that, you know, it's, I guess it comes to relationship with money, right? If you, if you, if you only want the best, accept the best, surround yourself with the best, you end up with the best. But it's yeah. that whole mindset around it. Which is fascinating. Yes, it's a hard it's a hard one to sort of um, when you're pushed on dollars for anyone to really to, to understand. I, I, I you know it was hard with me with, with uh, Oxbow with Isabel to understand that you know that and you know they never you know my whole thing was about business class. You know, mm. she said, "Of course you don't fly for economy, never." <laughs> Don't even think about yeah, it. Don't know. turn right ever. You know, never, ever, 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 you know. This is where, you know, this is where you're going, you know. So it was just like, it was just 
she always uh, in love to indulge me. And, but that's good. You know, she was she was a good friend of that. She bought a recording studio. She sold Oxbow for squillions yeah. to a um, a friend, no, a Scottish superannuation company. What? Yeah. Who and when it didn't when it didn't do the normal eight percent, you know, yeah. they, were, they needed. Then the whole thing was um, was liquidated and sold to somebody else. I don't even know, but it sold again, you know. And, and then, then it got once they're in that cycle with the with big companies, then they're gone, yeah. you know, because then and then there's no passion left. Same old thing we were yeah. talking about before. You can't have passion if you don't understand what you're doing or what the product even is. You know, they're just so they were running from it, and it was it was okay. You know, I liked uh, I, I liked it. There was another company that ended up picking up a French company that was going to, and they called me and said, "We really want you to come back." And what was the name of that company? And I did a year with them just to kind of put it my mm-hmm. end of it back together again. But it was a lost cause, really, because then you you get the marketing bosses from Nike or somebody, you know, they, yeah. just, they just didn't understand. You're, you're stuck with a situation that was, you know, uh, I'm just trying to think what the name of that name of that company was. They owned four or five big stables of fashion stables mm. in France. I'm not a fashion guy, so. <laughs> so they, 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 they yeah. just, you know, they, they, they were, and the, but it just didn't work for surfing. Yeah. You know, you have to have people from surfing involved in surfing companies. You can't go the other route. It's mm. a ridiculous thing to do. Yeah. So that's it. So shifting on more personal stuff, um, I was quite intrigued to listen that you big into meditation. Um, believe in meditation, if that's a correct understanding. Still, no, no, I still do. Yeah, so just how, how did you stumble across it? Who introduced you to it? Um, and and, and what, is, what does your practice look like? Okay, I stumbled across it when I got arrested and I had a good friend who was in the Hare Krishna movement who was heavily into um, meditation mm. and I got arrested in Queensland and... He introduced, Ted Spencer, who was a great surfer in Australia, introduced me to meditation and I stuck with it just because it felt good. Mm. And I still meditate because it feels good. Uh, I think anything that makes you feel good, um, as long as it's, you know, reasonably bloody... (laughs) As long as it's reasonably healthy and doesn't have any derogatory effects, um, is a good thing, you know. So, I mean, meditation is is just something that if you do it, and all I do is just repeat a mantra every morning for 20 minutes, it makes me feel clearer. So I don't, and and why that is, is because I'm not thinking. So the brain just turns off. Monkey brain goes. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So, you know, you can get the brain to turn off by repetition because there's nothing to think about when you're just saying the same things over and over and over and over and over. And that's that's kind of the way I've been um, 
that was the way Ted Spencer got me into it. And I just, and I've stuck to it because the only reason I stick to it is because it feels good. Mm. And how many years ago was that? Mm, 84. Okay. So not that long ago. Yeah. You know, well, it depends on what a long or short time, I don't know. <laughs> it's quite a while ago, yeah. I guess, but I mean, yeah. And it was just a, you know, just ridiculous situation that I was in the wrong place at the right, at the wrong time, at mm. the right time for them, you know. And I just had to prove my innocence, which I did. But at the time, I was just like devastating, of course. And so if things are devastating, when things are devastating, you turn to whatever you have in your arsenal to survive. So yeah. that's what I had to survive was um, what Ted Spencer taught me, which was how to do the Hare Krishna uh, meditation. And has your mantra changed over the years or is it the exact same one? Exact same one. Which is the Hare Krishna or whatever? Yeah, it's a Hare Krishna basically repetition in order to stop thinking. Yeah. So it's not, it's not complex at all. Yeah. I think you could say anything you wanted to, really. I mean, sometimes I think, I want, you know, but I mean, the, tr the problem is that once you're programmed... <laughs> autopilot can kick in. Autopilot yeah. just does it, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I open my eyes and get up, that's what I do. Yeah. So I don't, you know, there's no sort of, you know... You know, even if I've had a big night, you know, and drunk too much wine, I'll still um, go to the bathroom and then come back and meditate. So it's a pretty, you know, it's a pretty good good thing to be doing consistently over the years. And I guess if it wasn't feeling good, I wouldn't do it. Yeah. I mean, if I couldn't see that there was a benefit of going, hmm, this is, you know, feeling nice and clear, you know. Because that's what you do, don't you? you? You do things that make you feel good. You uh, I, I, yes, but I think a lot of people have forgotten that. You know, as we were saying before, off camera, a lot of people just do stuff because they do stuff. They don't do stuff well, which, you know, which fills their cup and you know makes them a better person. I think you've got to do. I think you've got to do things that make you feel make you feel whole and good. And you know, when you go up, when you wake up and you do something like this, then you can get up and you go. Sweet, you know, mm. I'm ready for the day, you know. Because if not, you know, then I find that I've, you know, well, I haven't ever done it, but, you know, I mean, I can imagine that if I did that, I wouldn't be feeling too energetic, you know. I wouldn't feel empowered, yeah. I guess is the word. And empowered is the, is what is the key word to this, you know. I mean, when I, because especially for me, I've got to be ready to play with the kids, go for a surf, go all these things that you want to do. Yeah. So you've got to make sure that you've got, you know, plenty of energy to be able to, to handle all the things that keep coming up. Yeah. So transitioning onto kids, I mean, obviously you have four kids, right? Have four kids. Four kids. <laughs> Having kids changes your life fundamentally, as you know, um, time disappears. Um, just in terms of, I guess having kids and, 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 you know, traveling, I'm assuming what you did, how did you juggle it in the early days? Um, Not very well. Yeah. Not very fucking well at all. No, you know, I mean, I think I was a really bad parent for, so, you know, I mean, with my second wife now with Ty, I think I'm a much better parent. 
because mm. I think I'm much more hands-on and I get into doing things with them, you know. But, like, my first kids, my two kids by my first wife, I was really a real I, I – I was vagrant because I was on the road so much, you know, like all of that. Like I told you, with Weber, I was away all the time. I mean, Naomi was born in 1971. That was my first kid. And, you know, I just, I think I was there for three days and then I had to believe it would be back, be back on the East Coast, you know. Yeah. So I wasn't even there, you know. This yeah. was in Byron Bay. Just... It's hard to balance um, everything that's particularly hard when you when you've got um, when you're trying to you know I, I shouldn't have really had a family then at all yeah I mean in retrospect that was the stupidest thing I ever did because you know as I say I was a vagrant you know I mean I was I wasn't there for it you know and I'd be back here for a couple of weeks and then I'd be there or I'd have to go to a circuit, you know, I was following a, a circuit of surfing contests, you know, in Australia, you know, all of that sort of period. Shit house, you know. You go to Bells Beach and then you can't take them because you've got to go and do something for, you know, I had some sponsorship with Rip Curl at that stage, you mm -hmm. know, just so many things where you just go, it's just not, you know, I don't think that um, so-called professional sports is very conducive to having a family. I really don't, you know. And I know a lot of people that have made a complete screw-up of it. Do you think because you have to have that singular focus on your arts, whatever that sport yeah. is, to be the best? Maybe. Maybe. it's Maybe that's a good point, is that, you know, people do try to... You know, you're trying to be focused and because, but you see, you could be a lot more focused if you didn't have these wonderful things in your life, which are asking for attention. Mm. So, you know, it's a, it's a real catch 22, you know, that they want your attention. You can't give them your full attention. So then you do a shitty job of being a dad or a mum. Like there's so many mums are in the same boat, you know, they just, do absolutely shitty job. I mean, I see them around here all the time, you know. People that are just, you know, they shouldn't be mothers. Yeah. And they shouldn't be fathers, you know. They just, I think people should be much more responsible about being mothers and fathers and really do it, you know, be ready for it and do it completely, you know. I mean, that's why, you know, Nava and Taylor are really doing a pretty good job because they're giving full attention to it, you know. Yeah. I mean, they're fortunate that we've got a lot of people here that are helping them out, you know, like Ty and, yeah. you know, not me, but Ty really helps me out. We just play with them, but, you know, she saves it. You know, everybody's arts all the time, and it's great. It's just, yeah, I don't know about that one. I really don't. I just... And have you... Have I you just think too soon. Yeah. I think that a lot of people, you know... And most times they don't even consciously do it. They just stumble into it. Oh, all of a sudden, you know, I found this girl I really wanted to marry her. She's wonderful. And then a kid comes along and then another kid, you know. I mean, you just, it's like, uh, you remember a movie called Zorba the Greek? It's like the full catastrophe. Yeah. <laughs> That's what, you know, because 
what? Well, what's going on? That's a television in the room. And that's, <laughs> that's why we can keep them sort of, when they all want to go and watch cartoons, we... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It works out pretty well, I tell you. Because, I mean, just, I guess, just a, a statement from my perspective, when I was in my darkest day dealing with my shit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it stemmed from my parents. And I yeah. think, and, and, and I, and I, and I was... Were they divorced? No, they weren't. They weren't. I was just, um, I just never good enough. My dad was a top level rugby player and I never kind of fulfilled those shoes. So it was never never filled the gaps I was meant to fill, so to speak, you know, never achieved what I was meant to achieve. And, and, um, and then, and then when my, my ex-wife had multiple affairs and when she did, my parents said, I must leave her. I chose to stay in the family. I chose to stay with her and with my kids. And then they disowned me, you know, that was, that was their part. And, uh, both died of cancer and never said another word to them. But, uh, but a, a lot of that stuff, a lot of my baggage had to do with them, right? And and as a dad, I'm like, oh shit, you know, I'm very well, thankful make, that I learned. You're that. making up for it, right? Well, absolutely. You're giving it full attention. Oh, it sounds like it. Absolutely, because I, 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 as hard as those lessons were, just to have that, the huge impact that you do have is is, you know, hopefully came in enough time, I suppose. Yeah. Well, it 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 does because you become conscious of it, mm. and then you do something about it. You know, and like that's what I'm saying to you. But with, with you know, when I got married again to Ty, yeah, and we had two kids, and then I'm really conscious of what's going. You know, I'm spending time as much time as I possibly can with them. You know, like not, I you know, my travelling was still going when Nava was young. I was still travelling a lot with Oxbow, but basically, um, I wasn't. Um, I wasn't probably doing as much as what I could have, but I was doing that as much as I, and I was trying to make up for it. Like a lot of the times I'd take Nava with me. Yeah. I'd have to go to, you know, we went to Zimbabwe and then we went back to, she came to the board meetings up in France with Laird and, Laird and Gabby and there. And, yeah. and then I, and then I'd put her and I'd, then I'd do something with her and I'd get somebody to look after her and then I'd go and, Go to a meeting, yeah. and you know, so I could, you know, I did a lot of that sort of stuff where I'd bounce around the world, taking Nava with me, mm. which was good. She was she was a good little traveller. <laughs> she loved it, you know, and I loved it yeah. too, you know, because like you get time with your kid in in a foreign place, and it's great, you know. It's such. I I did a. Recently, did a, a road trip through New Zealand. We hired a camper van just with my oldest because the younger two with their mom. We did a seven-day road trip through New Zealand, and it was just such a good time. Yeah, just quality time, you know. Yeah, because it's just you. Yeah, one on one is the best, I think. You know, where you can get seen to where you're actually working on it. You know, and yeah. I, I did. You know, I've done that quite a bit with uh, with Nava and with Bryce. Yeah, it's good. Mm. And your older two kids from your first marriage or that that relationship back together um comes and goes oh you mean the mum or no the the your kids the kids yeah well the, the relationship with my eldest daughter is she just tends to put her foot in it all the time and that makes it difficult she mm. means well but she makes some catastrophic decisions she was a a flight attendant with Qantas for many years yeah 
and lost her job and now she's grasping at new things to do. So Naomi is, um, you know, she's not particularly um, doing well. I don't really talk to her that much because she just sort of did a couple of things and everybody just sort of it's, it's cringeability. So I don't, I don't really know where she's at. Bo is fine. Bo's mm-hmm. up in Mullumbimby and he's got a got a nice property in the pocket up there. And, I, you know, I, he was down here for a week, just a couple of weeks ago. He comes and goes and he's fine. He's still – but, I mean, see, it's easy with Bo because he's surfing all the time. Yeah. He's playing music all the time. So, you know, and he's working for that surfboard warehouse people. Yeah. Which has always been a bit of a – a problem as far as we're all concerned. I mean, everybody in the family just goes, what for? But yeah. now he's building his own surfboards and you can buy other board, you know, boards that he makes and we wish that he would just stick with that and not um, and not do surfboard, pop out Chinese, whatever they yeah. are. Yeah. But it's still his race. Everybody runs their own race. I don't have the ability to or the desire to tell him what he should do. But I think that it's, um, I think that that whole thing with the Chinese and pop-out surfboards goes totally against the whole essence of what surfing is. Mm. So, I, you know, I don't endorse it, but he knows that I don't endorse it. But yeah. I, I try to be. <laughs> yeah, it is quite. I mean, as a standing, as I was prepping for this and, and listening to your story, you, you know, when you talk, you can just, as I said, you hear your passion about the whole shaping journey. It was, yeah, yeah. Well, I was in. I, I assumed that that would be a conflict. <laughs> well, it is a conflict, but it's not something that where it's. It's not a conflict for me. Yeah. In fact, I, there was a company that I worked for once. I had a two-year contract. I worked for a company called Big. They did yeah. the pens. Hmm. And they did, and Big Sport was the owned by the two sons of the Baron Big. So it was a pop-out surfboard, rotor mold, yeah, and you know it comes out of it just like sausages, yeah, <laughs> um, not even particularly pretty sausages, but you know they did a um, and they wanted to do a Nat Young model, and they paid me pretty good money up front, and at that stage I was doing this the buildings for this down the road and a couple of hundred grand for that really helped, you yeah. know. So I, um, they did those boards and, you know, they asked me to come up with some way to market mm. the whole deal. And I came up with a thing called a One Design World Championship. So we'd yeah. take the best longboarders in the world to somewhere, yeah. like the Maldives and Peru, and I think we did some other, a couple of other places before the wheels came off the whole deal. But, you know, it was an expensive deal, but it was good because um, they all had to surf the same board. I love that concept. It was in your latest book. I, I thought it was just such a cool – because it levels the playing field, right? Yeah, it was. It was a bizarre idea. Yeah. I dreamt it up one night, so everybody, <laughs> and everybody had to cop it. Some, <laughs> some people hated it. Yeah. They said, the boards are shit. I don't know why you want to surf these boards. And I said, this is what it is. One design. You've got to ride just this. Come on, you can do it. And they go, oh, I can't fucking ride this thing. <laughs> yeah, so that was fun. But, I mean, no, I, I um, that was a, my experience with Big was uh, 
that's the only time that I've ever been involved with a commercial um, uh, surfboard manufacturer, but they treated me well. So yeah. um, it was it was a good relationship. It was just um, a, a bit of a it must be similar to what Bo's got going now with the Chinaman, because with with the big I had, it was a real conflict. You know, I mean, I, I'd look down some of the boards and they weren't perfect because the stuff goes like this and this yeah. and you know they're in the general vicinity but they're just not right you know and I'd go oh, <laughs> and then you'd speak to the guy who's actually pushing the buttons yeah. and oh no Nat we can't com-, you know that's that's what it is you know what do you do you know I don't have a mortgage I don't have a mortgage I don't have a mortgage you know, <laughs> it's somebody you know somebody in Cornwall's ordered 50 of them and the guy in bloody in the Netherlands has ordered another 50 and somebody in Germany and you know, I mean, so you're going to sell, you know, like 5,000 bloody boards, you know, in which case, but you see that is, it's a real um, conflict because a real contradiction and essentially nobody should sell out like that. Like I sold out on that one and mm-hmm. I knew I sold out, which is, that's probably worse. When you know, <laughs> you know, they just sold out, you know. And and I because I you know it, it was convenient at the time, and you know, I'm sorry that it was, but it was, you know. So well, it's you know two parts. It's either go to Commonwealth Bank and pay them for the money, or or take that, that other option. I mean, yeah, you know, that's that's the harsh reality, I guess. Well, it is the harsh reality, but it's also. Uh, Stupid! You do better to um, to just walk away and figure a way to you know you, you're going to survive. You yeah. Know? I mean, I guess the essence of all of this is no matter what happens, you're going to survive. You know, you know, you're not nobody's. I mean, I would you know I would have had to have waited a little longer to pay off this place down the road here, you know, because I didn't have the money. Mm. But you know, eventually it was going to keep renting. I was going to be able to pay it off. You got to make a deal with the bank to pay them back yeah. slower than what you said. But is that was better to go in there and go something to do something with big? I'm not so sure about which ones, which ones the best. But I just know that it wasn't a very. I didn't feel very good about it. Yeah. I felt very bad, and I know even now with Bo and the Chinaman, you know, he feels bad about it, but. He says, you know, how do you, you know, he's trying to shape surfboards to sell at the same time as work with the Chinaman and selling their bloody products out of, he's doing two days a week on the floor for the Chinaman. Yeah. But that's, that's really tough, you know, because you're trying to, do, I don't know how he's doing it. I really don't. I mean, uh, especially these days where the whole Chinese thing is just, so on the nose, you know, no one wants to know about them, you know, so. Yeah. I can't imagine they're selling any surfboards, but maybe, you know, I don't know. It's not my, uh, not my problem. I think that they're, I just think wish that the companies like that, you see, if surfing wasn't um, commercialised and the whole thing with the WSL wouldn't have got so where they got in this big spin. Mm. The Chinamen wouldn't have even come near surfing. They, they, they shouldn't even. They don't have surfers in their home country. They don't have people that even understand 
what it's like to be a surfer and be dedicated to the ocean. They don't know anything about it, so why should they be involved in selling the product? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, 100%. You know why? You know, they're not entitled to be a part of this. You know, it's like they don't deserve to be a part of this because they're not a part of it. What they are is just a commercial company based in China trying to make another dollar. Yep. Well, you know, I just don't think that's... I don't think that's fair for... Um, I think it's selling surfing really short. They're just going, oh, here's another sport that we can, you know, this yeah. is just like making tennis rackets. We're going to make tennis rackets and we're going to sell them, you know. <laughs> Look at this. So it's, it's, a, it's a sick old place. When, and, you see, I would see, see that surfing really is on that level is much more exclusive. You know, it's the exclusive club. There's no way people like that can be a part of it. You know, they just tell them, I'm sorry, there's no way in. We don't want to know about it, you know. And that's what really should happen with all of these people, you know. <laughs> and it should have happened with Bic too. Yeah. You know, I mean, they should have just stuck to doing pens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the dollar always talks, unfortunately, or it generally. Is, most, yeah. yeah. And it is unfortunate. <laughs> it's bloody ridiculous. It's just... But surfing should have been above that, you know, because yeah. it was above that originally. If you go back to the 30s and the 40s and, you know, the, the people, you know, like, you know, like Woody Brown and Tom Zahn and any of the, you know, and the, the, you know, the really greats of surfing in those early days, they were just totally, well, have you read this start mm. of... Um, start of you know Church of the Open Sky is all about sort of people that are just totally dedicated watermen that are not going to compromise because you know that's just Tom Blake you know Tom Blake's the classic you know they wanted him to go go to war and he went no because I won't kill people yeah I don't care. I'll fight people on the beach if I have to, but I'm not going to war. And, you know, so you've got really a different level here of what surfing really was. And what I'm trying to say to you is it shouldn't be sold cheap. Mm -hmm. And given this whole thing that's, it's not, that's, that, those principles from people like Blake and Tom Zahn and Woody Brown is and Buffalo Kailana, who's still alive, and, you know, and all these. Those principles should be totally adhered to, you know. George Downing, you know. I mean, all of these things that they were on about, that's what really is the benchmark for where surfing was sort of started and where it got to. And it should never have gone the other way to turning into this commercial sport that is you know, basically based on on competitive, um, on competition, really. And I think it's just ridiculous. I think it was, you're selling it short. I think it's a lifestyle. I think it's an art form. I think it's everything that is opposed to where the WSL stands for these days. Yeah. You know, just, but, you know, just an opinion. I don't claim to be able, I don't claim to be a, the guru and all this, you're asking me what my opinion is and I'm telling you that's it. So with your 
just a, I guess this is maybe projection from me, but with your kids, do they always just be part of the ocean or do they knee jerk and saying, well, surfing was your thing, therefore I'm going to do something else or, or was it, did it not really work like that? No, it didn't work like that because if they want to hang around with me, <laughs> that's what I do. Yeah. So there was never any, um, never all of them, you know, even, even those, those ones that are by my first wife. Yeah. And also these two. That's what I do. If, uh, you know, if they want to hang around with me and want me to be a part of their life, they've got to do it with me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'll work with them, but, you know, we made, we got Bryce to play a little football for a couple of weekends. <laughs> he didn't like it. And then we did, we did all sorts of things, you know. I mean, now we got into doing a couple of different group activities that she wasn't very good at anyhow, so... <laughs> It's funny, you know, yeah. you just got to, uh, yeah, but no, I, I, my feelings are on that one that, um, that, you know, that I, from this family, I set the, um, the trends in a lot of ways about what we're doing. Yeah. And like going to the snow, like every year we pack up and go to the snow every, and, you know, when there's waves, we get down to the beach yeah. and we hang out down there all day and surf. Yeah. They had no choice. That's what the fuck they did. You know? <laughs> it's and, so they, and they loved it. You yeah. Know? I mean, and then they both turned out. To, they all turned out to be excellent surfers. Yeah. Naomi too, as well as Bo, and then Bryce, of course, is you know right up there with some of the finest surfing I've ever seen in the world these days. You know, and he's and Nava is a really good surfer, and she surfs all the time. But it's hard being a mum with two kids as well as getting out there and surfing. Yeah. But she she pulls it off a lot of the time. Not today, I don't think. But <laughs> yesterday, I think she did. So with um, with them, from from what I pick, obviously Bo's got some more titles. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think he's got two from from memory. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you mentioned your loss, but Bryce gave a competitive thing a go. What, what is it like watching from the outside, you know, with them going down the competitive path um, and following their journey? I mean, what was your advice and, or, or how did you manage that? It's, it's really hard because just a normal dad, you know. I mean, I think my kids are the best. So, you know, if, I, <laughs> if I'm watching them and, I'm, and then they lose – I'm going, oh, my God, it's the worst thing in the world, you know. <laughs> so, you know, you've got to really, um, it's, it's a balancing act. You, you've got to teach them about the fact that, you know, competition, you've got, you know, when you go in a contest, yeah. you've got to be ready to lose. You've got to be able to accept loss because inevitably it's going to happen, you know. If it doesn't happen in that one, it may happen in the one after it, but, you know, the, the good thing about all that is that surfing is just the, the most terrible competition anyhow. Because, I, you know, you and I could have a stand-up fight about what the fuck was good surfing. Mm. I mean, I have my opinion, you have your opinion. They're both totally valid. Absolutely, yeah. But, you know, I, but, you know so who won the contest? Well, the one who had the most tricks or the one that did more but, you know, like, and, and, you know, and I would say that that's why you can get to things like the guy who was, um, Mickey Dora answered this one time really brilliantly about he divulged or he designed a surfing contest with a boy that you, when you first took off, 
and at Jeffrey's. Yeah, sweet. And you went all the way to as far as you could. And the guy with the stopwatch on it and also timing the speed. Yeah. And the guy who went fastest for the longest possible distance was yeah. the winner. And this was <laughs> and he's just sort of sending up the whole thing about surfing contests because he's saying that it's just bloody ridiculous, you know, and they all had to have board, boards that they made they themselves. Made, that's the letter you wrote in the in the, in the Church of the Open Sky. Yeah. Yeah, the, the rules. Yeah, exactly. was, yeah, it was classic. Yeah, and, you know, and, and it's just so, uh, all of these things are just so different. I just think it's. I mean, I remember, you know, the ASP when I was kind of, you know, in high school. <laughs> you know, it was as many maneuvers as possible to the beach. Yeah, so that was. So uh, the guys were in what two foot slop, yeah, just going snap, 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 and winning heats. And you're like, well, what is that? Martin Pollock. Yeah, Martin Pollock. The only time you stop a wave is when you feel the sand between your toes. Yeah, it's crazy. He was just like, you know, Jesus, it's Martin. No, wrong. You go, oh well, that's the way I see it now. You know, okay, good. But that, you know, at at that time, I mean, that was how you won contests. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that was the rules. Yep. As, as bizarre as they were. Yep. Yep, that was the way the rules were. Oh, no. oh there we go. There we go. So, just two more things before we can wrap up, Nat. Mm. Thank you so much for all your time. Okay. Um, just, you, you mentioned a lot about different mentors you've had in your life and how influential they've been you know, in various aspects from, um, how have you tried to mentor others underneath you? You know, how have you... First of all, just to finish that whole thing about mentors. Yeah. I, we just had my 76th um, birthday of my best friend here on Sunday, last Sunday. Mm. Uh, he's 76. He's been my friend since I was 12 years old. And I think that it's all a test of time with it with friendship like that, you know. And people, and even George Greenoat was telling me too, this the week before, this, it's all about the test of time, you know. It's all about how long you can know someone to truly, truly be a good friend to them and for them to be a good friend to you. And that, to me, is just so important. It's just so just, just absolutely, it's the essence of the whole deal, you know. Like, and with uh, with John the other day, we were just talking about that and saying how wonderful it was to know the different facets of how a person is over sixty years, yeah. and how they react to things and what you know, and you know, and for me to be able to make something for John for his seventy sixth birthday and to know that he would genuinely love it because I understand exactly how he thinks about things. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, just, you know. Anyway, so what what would you, anyway, just to finish that up. No worries. No, just in, in like, how have you tried to mentor others coming through? Well. Those who would listen. <laughs> yeah. No, just by, uh, I guess just mostly around here, it's by just example, just, you know, you the way, you know, I mean, people know, as I said before, that ever since, you know, I've come back from overseas from the last, last time in, in March, 
I don't. Uh, I, I only want to ride my new dealers to just ride five waves and then go in. Mm. Because I don't want to be greedy, and I don't, and I feel that that should be enough on those few waves to give me satisfaction. So that, to me, is giving an example to people who know me very well around here, and I live with all the time. So they know me in the surf, they know me on the beach, they know me out here. You know, when I go to pick up a new board tomorrow, everything's about you know about knowing how people are. You know. And that's, I think, I think example is the best thing that I've got going with me. You know, they're just, uh, they're just, um, I don't literally sit down and have to um, mentor anyone or talk to them about this or that, you know, what I've got to do, you know, because I just simply, you know, I stick to myself really and my family and that's the people that I'm involved with. So I don't get into uh, to raves with um, a lot of the kids around here about what's going on, you know. I mean, I, I went up there the other day when they were on Sunday and there was 43 people out in the water and, and uh, you know, this beautiful, these two beautiful surfers that are local kids here pulled up behind me and said, oh, you know, what, you, you're coming out now? And I said, no, there's 43 people out there. <laughs> and they said, well, so what? You'll get a wave or two. And I said, yeah, but I don't want to go through the shit to get a wave or two. So, you know, they, they, they've got to, sometimes you've just got to go, you know, surfing's changed. There's a lot more people doing it now. It's become very popular. Mm. And it's better sometimes to just sort of go, you know what, I'll come back at some stage when there's not so many people and, you know, and then do it then. So I don't literally have to verbalize with these kids about about what is what i consider right or wrong why sometimes i do sometimes i get into raves with them and talk to them but not very often you know most, mostly it's just sort of i'm hanging out at the beach with them you know talking yeah. to them yeah. not much so the last thing i just want to cover in terms of how you've kept your body going i know you've got the genesis 2 bionic knee in there now yeah. um, but just uh, in, I think a podcast you did earlier this year I, I think you said that which you're 73 now right mm-hmm. that you surfed every single day for three and a half months except four and then backed it up with 114 days of a ski season that yeah. said, or whatever it, I know I know a lot of 30 year olds can't handle that so so what well, have you what have you done over the years to maintain that but you understand that it's just like my religion, right? Yeah. Like all of this is just like, you know, if you were to ask me what my religion is, I'll tell you it's surfing. Yeah. And that's what I do. Yeah. So that means if it's a religion, I do it every chance I possibly can, like every day, you know? Yeah. And, you know, if I'm not doing that and I'm going skiing because surfing – is, as I said to you before, is just a substitute for surfing. Mm. Surfing and skiing, to me, are both riding fall lines as fast and as hard as I possibly can. And sometimes it really feels um, fantastic and other times I fuck up and, you know, all of the other things that come with life. But essentially, I see, um, I see them all as uh, absolutely the same activity. Yeah. And, I, and, you know, and, and that means that I have to stay fit pretty well. 
you know, I don't, um, on the last night having a major, I ended up drinking too much wine, but I'm essentially, essentially I don't really, um, and my wife is a full vegan and so is my daughter, Nala. Yeah. So I don't eat any, uh, any crap, really. And very, very rarely do I eat any meat. I try to be as healthy as I possibly can and I try not to eat too much because if I do something every day at least I'm going to be able to, um, you know, I don't, I'm not going to turn into um, somebody that can't really still jump up on a surfboard because too many of my friends around here have all, you know, they put on too much weight and yeah. like, then they, you know, they, their body won't let them jump up quick, you know, and that's, that's, you know, I mean, it happens, but it's a tragic thing because it means that they're missing out on something that was the essence of their life, yeah. you know. And some of these people around here, that was their religion too, and now they're not doing it anymore, you know. So what does that mean they turn to? They turn to... All the vices. Yeah, or there's not, you know, or, or going for a walk, or which is all good, but it doesn't substitute for something that has mental and physical and all of the other yes. qualities that surfing has. And I, you know, I, it pisses me off when they, I just had another one happen to today, you know. And a friend, a friend who was here went and bought his board off him because he hasn't used it in six months. And you go, oh, God, well, why doesn't he use it? Well, that's a nice board. He went out and surfed on it, you know, where we went surfing. So it's just hard, you know. I just don't – I don't have a real um, incredible understanding of, of what's going on on that level. I just think you've got to really never, ever stop what you like doing. I mean, I don't care what it is. If you like riding bikes and doing this and that's what your life is, fucking do it. You yeah. know? Don't back off, you know. Don't back off until you're dead, you know. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to back off this activity until I'm dead. I, I don't care. I'm not afraid of death, you yeah. know, and I'm not worried about that. I just, I've got a situation where I, I feel that my body, is, it's good for a while longer. I haven't so far, I haven't abused it, so... It's good to good for you, you know, parts wear out, like what you're talking about with the Genesis 2 with the knee. So, you know, you get really quality doctors that can just cut it, throw it in the bin and give you another one, you know, <laughs> and it's harsh. Yeah. But that's what we have in this day and age, you know. The bionic man is totally possible, you know. We can get all of those things we can have, you know, have new hearts and new knees and new hips and I serve it a day with a mate who's got from here who's got two new hips. There you go. He's serving better than he ever served. <laughs> oh, he is. fantastic, you know. And he's just got two new hips, you know. And I, I just said to him, I said, Daz, I can't believe how you're surfing. He said, yeah, the fucking hips are pretty good now. I'm loving it, you know. I think even Len's got a new hip in, doesn't he? I Has he? I, I think he's got a hip in there. Since I left Oxbow, I haven't really, I haven't spent any time with Leanne. We used to spend quite a bit of time together, but sometimes that happens. You yeah. get away from, but he probably has too. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's pretty hard. Okay, so let's let's wrap up. Thank you so much. You're for, very for welcome. your time. I really appreciate the chat. Oh, it's good. It was a good. It was a good chat. 
I hope. I think it will work, won't it? Yeah. Just a closing thought, if you don't mind. A closing thought. For anyone who is struggling in life and going through a shitty patch. Well, I think a lot of the things I just said really add up to, Mm. you know, I think, because it really is, is, you know, I mean, our family motto is make it a beautiful life. You've only got one fucking chance. Mm. And that's the essence of the story about life, you know. You've got to get into it and you've got to do it. And what we said about all those things is if you like riding fucking road bikes, then ride, right? But, yeah. but, you know, personally for me, I like riding the surfboards and that's what I do. And I, when there's no, when I'm away, I like skiing and that's what I do. But I don't get up and go, oh, the same as here. I don't get up and go, oh, I look shitty. I went in doubt, paddle out mm. and find out. If it's shitty, you find out. Yeah. You know, but you always have a good in. time anyway. It always, oh, you always have, it's always no, better than it looks. You don't always have a good time. But, I mean, sometimes it's just really a, it's a really healthy thing to do to have a, prin- a principle of, fuck, I'm not sure, man. I'll pay one when I was when in doubt, paddle out, yeah. you know. So that's my closing uh, my closing put on it all. <laughs> Thanks so much, man. No, no, you're really welcome. appreciate it, man. Okay, okay man.